Welcome to the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, a podcast by Noibu, where we explore the elite strategies and cutting edge insights with our expert guests. Get ready to propel your e-commerce business to the next level. Welcome everyone to the e-commerce toolbox, Experts Perspective. Joining us today, we have a corporate VP, gone entrepreneur, and now he's back as a corporate VP. Joining us from sunny California, we got Jordan Baines. Welcome, Jordan. Hi there. Thank you for having me. I think I already alluded to this out of the gate, but you've had a really interesting career so far. Walk us through and talk us through your career journey so far and uh, what brought you to head up the uh, e-com division at Inkbox. Sure. Happy to speak to that. I started, at least in terms of this side of my career, at social media management software company that was bought by Adobe, later became Adobe Social. We were part of the Adobe Marketing Cloud and didn't end up staying at Adobe, which great company, just not where I needed to be. Joined on with a crowdfunding startup. It didn't work out. Joined on with a MarTech ad optimization startup, built a, a small services business within that. And when that startup failed, that services business became the agency that I ran for five years with my business partner in New York. Took a year off and I realized when I'm like, you know, I'm board and I really like marketing and I really like the work that I had a gap in my experience. And it was, I hadn't really worked in the middle of an organization that had been running programs, had been running an entire agency at one point. And when I came back to work, I started as a director of performance marketing here at Inkbox because I wanted to go run ads. And it was a lot of fun. And then our CRO went off to go be a CMO at a, a really, really cool startup. And all of a sudden, all of advertising and all of e-commerce became mine again. So here I am having accidentally ended up back in the place where I was because it's a good fit. Awesome. Well, thanks for that answer there. And as you look to take over kind of the strategy and drive results, how are you looking at AI in terms of incorporating AI into driving up results and just your tech stack moving forward? That's a great question. There's a lot of different ways of kind of going after that. Obviously, there's how do you integrate LLMs into your content creation, which we're doing some of it, but we haven't really gotten the kind of personalization that we like. How do you integrate large machine learning models into your analytics stack? And obviously Google's doing what it's doing from an optimization standpoint. Meta's doing what it's doing. We just onboarded a tool that does analytics around incrementality, allows us to be able to do geomagic geotests that sort of thing to figure out what the real result of our spend is. And they do, in addition to just processing everything in the background, really, really cool technique where they're doing geomatching with an artificial geography. So you could take something like a DMA where there isn't really a good analog and create a synthetic DMA to be able to measure that against to figure out what your real lift is. House analytics, if anyone out there is looking, they're really cool. But I think the real big opportunity for us is on the image generation side, given that we sell tattoos. We're trying to figure out the best way of using image recognition to do things like create alt text for search relevance, SEO, for ADA compliance here in the States, generally to make our site more accessible to users who may not inherently be sighted or may have low vision, and ultimately to allow us to do a better job of recognizing images that have been uploaded to our platform to be able to convert them into custom tattoos rather than having to, you know, hand roto everything, have a custom tattoo designer take an image or an idea that you give us and turn it into something we can actually print. We have had discussions about using AI to generate images that are 
things that would live in our catalog. We have a very deep relationship with our artist community. We come from the tattoo community. We actually, for a long time, have had our own tattoo studio, like permanent tattoos. So it doesn't look like that's a thing that we would be doing in the near term, in part because, again, having people who create net new art is very different from having folks who can put something into a, uh, a Boolean string and then let an AI create an image based on it. I think there's a different creative set that's involved, especially because if we can show people interesting ideas and then let them riff on those ideas, either working with an artist or then working with a model, we can come up with better long-term vision, better execution against what's going to make our customer happy. So I think there's a lot of places to plug in AI. I think the important thing for us is making sure that it's a way that allows us to be more effective with what we're spending and more effective at increasing utility out of the bag for our customer. I love the way that you're looking at it. I think you're looking at it the right way in, in the form of, okay, how can it actually drive results? And then on the other side is as it gets starts to become more multimodal, like how can you really start to create harmony between your artists, what your customers want, and the available technology? So I think that makes a ton of sense. Looking at the calendar, Q4 is coming up quick. A lot of companies rely heavily on the Q4 sales, that Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas period. Maybe talk to us a bit about how you're preparing for that. We are definitely no different. We have a very, very, very big Q4, even though we are more seasonally oriented toward the summer. More skin, more tattoos, et cetera. So for us, Q4 is usually something that we are talking about well in advance. We had initial conversations about what the cadence through all of Q4 would look like back in June and July. We had commitments for what the overall cadence would be in August. We have a launch coming next week, another launch next week being the 17th of October. We have a huge new relationship partnership that we are launching on the 24th of October. We've got a really fun thing that may be dropping on Black Friday specifically. We're involved, but for the most part, the promo sequence itself from Singles Day to things like Early Access to the actual Black Friday launch, Cyber Week, all the way down through shipping cutoff, and what we're doing for the interim, hey, you can't get this this year, or for the holiday, the big holiday, but you could certainly still get yourself some interesting ink or how to send people out to our retail partners so they can buy in person. And then getting down through Boxing Day, Canadian company, Boxing Day is big for us through the end of the year. It's all set in stone at this point. Best advice for people, start early. We also are in an interesting position this year because we learned a lot last winter, last Q4, around what is viable for us from an incrementality standpoint. And I have used that word, I think, a couple of times in the ether out in and around LinkedIn in recent days. But the idea of what is it that this decision or this action that I'm doing specifically does to generate an outcome that I'm looking for, revenue, that would not happen otherwise. So I can have this great big ad campaign. Meta says that it has a huge return on ad spend, but if I was gonna get all of that money anyway because it's a discount on that day, that's not helpful. So one of the things that we did last year is we really started getting into things like incrementality testing, geo-testing to figure out what the real lift was for what we were doing because we needed to be able to cut our costs and get as profitable as possible, as fast as possible as a recently acquired company who's trying to contribute to a much larger envelope. It was interesting. We managed not to really lose a lot of revenue, even though we cut our marketing spend rather significantly. We ended up netting more profit than the amount of revenue that we lost in aggregate, which was a real strange outcome. But if you can figure out the best way of measuring what you're doing before you go into Q4, so if you have time before Black Friday, 
to do a holdout test, to figure out what actually works for you in a channel that you are doubtful of, that you might potentially want to cut spending on. You might find out that it has no incremental worth. You might be able to save that money. We've been doing this for a year now, trying to find all of the other nooks and crannies of places where we aren't spending. We're finding that we are marginally more efficient than we were last year at a similar scale. And as much as I would love to see immense growth right now, I'm happy to take home a lot more profitability and still provide great buying experience, great promo experience for our customer throughout the holiday. And our plan is built around Yeah. And I think that matches a lot of the kind of sentiment that we're seeing on the macro side. And as you've kind of taken on more responsibilities, it's flipping from, to your point, making sure that we're getting incrementality to also looking at the profitability of the different programs we're running. On the profitability side, in e-com D2C, in some cases, you could either upgrade or lose your shirt, depending on your inventory strategy. So maybe talk to us a bit about how you look at inventory, because I think a lot of companies kind of get caught out with that, where maybe they run out of certain items and they miss forecast and the other ones, they have a bunch of them sitting in the warehouse. So maybe talk to us a bit about how you look at inventory strategy and how that plays back into profitability mandates. That's such a good question, especially given if you have a bunch of other e-commerce folks who are listening to this, they have sitting inventory, they have stuff in warehouses for the most part. Our tattoos are printed to order. So you talk about the idea of just in time. We have a facility shuffled England. We have a facility down in Toronto in our headquarters. We have printing capabilities. So when you select something from the website, from our catalog, or you get a custom approved and order it, we print it then and send it to you. So from an inventory planning perspective, life is real easy for me. I don't have any inventory on hand with the exception of things like our nails products or our freehand markers. And those inventory planning, given how long our production cycle is, you know, it's going to be four to six months before we really have everything that we need at any given time. So right now, instead of looking at Q4, we're looking at Q1, Q2 for our retail partnerships, the big blue one, right? That has the little starburst pattern in it. The big blue one, you know, you're talking six to 10 months out for a lot of the inventory planning. So we're not talking about Q4 2023. We're talking about 2024 planning with them. Ideally, your inventory is already managed before now, unless you are doing your own fulfillment or you're doing fulfillment by Amazon. With Amazon, you know, we have a couple of years of historicals. We've got our inventory in place. Basically, we are right now set up to be able to fulfill our demand all the way to the end of the year based on what our plan is. We are on a two-week fulfillment cycle with that. So if we start seeing that we get a variance greater than what we anticipate, if we think we're going to stock out before shipping cutoff, for example, given the shelf life of our products, freehand marker, I think it's for two years before it sees any kind of deleterious effect. The tattoos can sit for nine months before they even have a remote difference in terms of how long they last. Like It's a two-week tattoo versus a 10-day tattoo at that point. We can afford to have more inventory on hand because there's not really much of a risk of wastage, but we still try to keep it pretty lean, mostly because there's no reason to risk at all. No, that, that makes sense. And it sounds like obviously you guys have to build a lot of infrastructure around just-in-time. But I think there, to your point, if you can run a just-in-time strategy, obviously it makes sense for, to your point, for profitability reasons. Looking into profitability as a theme, a lot of money could be spent on technology vendors and even more money could be spent on building in-house. I think every time I chat with a head of, of e-com and someone that's heading up e-com, especially with your level of GMV, they're always asking themselves the question, 
do we bring it in house? Do we hire a bunch of engineers? Do we rely on third parties within agencies? And there's like, there's no right answer. I'm curious to how you look at that. Have you guys fundamentally taken the position of your hybrid where maybe you had to develop tech for your just-in-time system, but on the other hand, you rely a lot on third-party vendors and we don't have to get into that, but I'm just high level curious how you look at that and where you've seen it be most successful. It's a super relevant question. I was at Commerce Next this summer and there was an entire track that was about should you go composable versus should you have a platform solution for all of your e-com versus your marketing spend, whatever else. There are parts of our business that have to be homebrew, right? Because we do our own production, the things that connect to fulfillment are all homebrew, in part because we have our own printers that run on our technology that we've built. But from an e-commerce perspective, everything that is visible to the customer, everything that handles inventory and transactions, that sort of thing. We started off as a, a Shopify store. Toronto-based company with another Toronto-based company. It makes perfect sense. You know, you, you got to go with the home team. We have, over the last couple of years, decoupled. And when I say that, I mean we've modularized a lot of our marketing stack and a lot of our e-commerce stack. Front end would be something like a contentful tag management through GTM rather than a pure native integration with Shopify. The SMS vendor that we're working with, the email vendor working with, even all the way down to things like Amplitude and Particle, which we got for event analytics and for CDP stuff, all of those things got atomized out because it gave us more of an opportunity to build something that was entirely custom that allowed us to be able to trace a lot of custom events. And since doing that, we've learned a lot more about what we need to know, what we don't need to know, what tools our users will actually use. Old Axiom, the best tool is the one that actually comes out of the box. And we're kind of in an interesting spot now where we have continued to modularize the back end to make it easier for us to work with a lot of different fulfillment partners or types of technology. But the front end, where it's been broken up into a lot of different technologies, we're looking very much at the idea of going with a platform partner in 2024 for things like our personalization and site optimization and SMS and email and even at some level analytics and CDP, from a cost savings perspective, for the overall functionality that we're getting, it's a really old argument, right? Are point solutions better than platforms? Platforms, you have the benefit of knowledge being shared across multiple functions without having to have it go out in between different technologies and be interpreted in different ways. With point solutions, you get people who concentrate on exactly one task, but it's more expensive because they have to get all of the revenue out of that one task. We live in an interesting future where composability is much more viable because the APIs that go between different tools are better. And a lot of platform plays, and this was my experience back at Adobe, back then, not true now, but back then, where a lot of solutions were bought up in a hurry, and Adobe and Salesforce and Oracle all had this problem with our marketing clouds early on, where we were bolting on solutions that didn't talk to each other. It's not easy, but we, at least internally, think that we're going to be able to get most of the functions that we need for the types of marketing activities we're going to be doing in 2024 and likely 2025 from one of a couple of vendors that we are talking to right now. And I, I don't want to give away the game to either one of them. Okay, so top level. And <laughs> if you don't take anything else from this, the things that are actually important that your business does that are unique to you, that are part of your value chain and define your competitive advantage, you have to do those at home. The modularized backend, the thing that makes us a, a company that prints tattoos with our proprietary ink on our proprietary printers, that's got to be us. Everything else, the trick is figuring out what works for your team 
and what scales your team's ability to do the things that they do best. Tools are scalable. People are not. If you put 50 times the processor power behind a tool, it does things in 2% of the time. If you increase someone to 500 times their size, they collapse into a ball of mush because their bones break. Like it's just not workable. For our selection, it was about what our team would use and use to the maximum effect in service of our customers and in service of our brand. Makes sense. One of my earlier interviews was with the CEO of Solo Brands, and they build the fire pits that everyone knows, and that's their technology. That's their competitive edge. They're not going to go try and rebuild a big commerce or Shopify platform in-house, and they just kind of made that decision early on. So it's kind of in line with what you're saying. As we look to wrap up, Jordan, what's one thing that you think e-commerce brands should stop doing? Something you see in the market that maybe gives you a bit of the cringe or the heebie-jeebies? So we're in a weird economic climate right now where we've been approaching a recession in North America for a long time, a global recession likely. And we still have folks who are just spending, 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 trying to do massive awareness plays without really anything to say. Let me just get in front of everybody all at once. And if you were trying to create an industry, maybe that makes sense. But there's a diminishing return to that. The cost to acquire somebody new gets progressively higher as you acquire customers. The retrial rate doesn't necessarily change unless you fundamentally alter your retention strategy or your loyalty strategy. Eventually, you have to transition to something where the easy conversation, how do you have your LTV over CAC be consistently profitable in a way that defines you as, as a sustainable business, but not so big that you aren't actually growing and you invite somebody else to take up the market space around you. If you're still in grow at all costs mode, this is not the economy to do it. Unless you are literally revolutionizing everything that is going on around you, it's just now's not the time. I've got a simple test. Is your thing cheaper, faster, easier to use, or ultimately better than everything else in the market in a way that defines the market differently? Then you can play. If you've got two of those, likely you can grow. If you've got three of those, you're Apple in 2006. Let me know when I'm going to invest. 10 to 1, you don't have the first one for most companies, no matter what we want to believe. If you got two, awesome. You can play. But generally speaking, right now, you're better off building really good infrastructure, really good brand relationships, listening to the people who are loyal to you, who tell you what your actual value story is, and figuring out when the growth curve comes back, how do you get on it early? And how do you go at it with an authentic message that your customer actually cares about? Makes sense. I think it's what we tell the team. It's high altitude training time. It starts the pendulum the other way. You want to make sure you're in shape so you could run down the hill as fast as possible. So very wise words. Jordan, best of luck in Q4 and really appreciate your time today. Very, very valuable insight. Thanks again, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. The e-commerce toolbox expert perspectives is brought to you by Noibu. To find out more about Noibu and how we can help you debug your e-commerce site and rocket your revenue, visit www.noibu.com. That's N-O-I-B-U.com. And then make sure to search for the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Noibu, thanks for listening.